Welcome to Servant Leadership Sessions, an ongoing series of conversations with business and thought leaders exploring the impact of servant leadership. Brought to you by Cairnway Center for Servant Leadership Excellence. Find out more at cairnway.net. That's C-A-I-R-N-W-A-Y.net. Now, here's your host, Kevin Monroe. Welcome to another Servant Leadership Session. Our guest for this episode is Richard Sheridan, CEO, Chief Storyteller, and co-founder of Menlo Innovations. He authored Joy, Inc., which, as a side note, tops my list of favorite books read in 2014. Welcome, Rich. Thanks for joining us today. I know this is going to be a stimulating conversation. Kevin, I'm delighted to be here, and uh, thanks for the call out about the book. I'm glad you enjoyed it. For those that aren't yet familiar with Menlo Innovations, how would you introduce the organization? You know, when I introduce Menlo to people who come on tours, and we do a lot of tours here, we have hosted over 3,000 people this year alone, and they walk in our door, and if I'm leading the tour, I say, welcome to Menlo. You've come to a place that has very intentionally created a culture focused on the business value of joy. And, of course, that surprises everyone because joy is not the typical business topic that most are familiar with. Uh, Eventually, I will get to what we do, and that is we are a software design and development firm. But I'm very clear that our internal expectations is in how we're going to serve the world and what we do. And we want to produce joy in the world with the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds. Wow. Well, we'll unpack that one in a moment, Rich. Before we do, though, in the book, there was a line uh, that I just loved. You mentioned that early in your career, before Menlo, a lot of your leadership was mimicking managerial mentors. And I think that's how many of us got our start. What, what were some of the behaviors you were mimicking? You know, I think um, I learned to be managed with fear, and therefore I learned to manage with fear. Uh, it's simple uh, things like just walking around saying, hey, how's it going? What you working on? I was specifically taught, for example, if I saw two people standing around talking to one another, at least one of them isn't working, and probably both. So as a manager, uh, I should go up and sort of insert myself into the conversation uh, with a subtle undertone of, okay, let's get back to work, not playtime. And, uh, you know, those are sort of the things that I learned to manage with. I learned to run Monday morning status meetings like the best of them uh, and, uh, you know, have everybody turn in their status reports on Friday and, you know, then search for the guilty parties on Monday so that we can determine who should be working harder and staying late. I learned to... um, expound uh, upon the people who worked all-nighters or worked late and worked long hours uh, and to try and encourage everyone to to work harder and longer hours than the person sitting next to them and then to reward that behavior. And and what was it, Rich, that led you to begin questioning those assumptions and to, to think they may not be working for you as well as you had hoped? Well, For me, it starts when I was just a kid. When I got into this industry, if you will, uh, when I was 13 years old, I typed a two-line program into a computer and fell in love with the idea of writing software for a living. 
Uh, my kids are still astounded by the fact that in 1971, at 13 years old, I decided what I was going to do the rest of my life. Um, and so I had that that sort of heart of a, of a little kid that just wanted to build something with his mind and his hands. Um, and I thought the world was going to be my oyster. Uh, you know, this was going to be the greatest profession ever. Uh, I sort of moved, started moving up the chain. But what I noticed were things weren't going as I had hoped. Uh, we weren't producing the results I wanted to produce. We weren't thrilling the people we were trying to serve. The people who worked for me were complaining all the time, and we were burning out, and we were working long hours, and customer calls were coming in with problems and complaints. And It was sort of like at a certain point I realized I don't even want to be in the profession anymore. This is going so wrong. And I'm sure at the beginning I thought it was just me. Maybe I wasn't smart enough or something like that. But at a certain point I realized as I looked around in the world, this was common. This was a common issue, not just even in the software industry, but in industry in general, that things weren't working. And I am an eternal optimist. If you put me in a room full of manure, I will keep digging till I find the pony. And uh, my, my dig led me to authors. Um, and those books that greatly influenced me pointed a direction for me that said there is a better way, there can be better results. Your job, find the way. And then that led to Menlo and then Joy. And so how was it that Joy became the core belief at Menlo? It's always been there. Uh, when we created our mission statement right near the beginning, uh, the very tail end of it, it said that our goal since our beginning, 2001, was to return joy to one of the most unique endeavors mankind has ever undertaken, the invention of software. We fundamentally believe that in our, hearts, in our heart of hearts. We didn't really lead with that message. It was a poster on the wall. We all knew it in our hearts. We talked about it internally, but we didn't actually lead with that message with the world until uh, someone, uh, after an interview like this, sent me a nice note and said, Rich, you do what Simon Sinek says and start with why. And I listened to this start with why message that he did in his TEDx talk, which is now famous, right? And it said, you know, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. So when you talk about your organization, don't start with what, don't start with how, start with why. And I realized, even though this person I uh, had gotten a nice note from thought I started with why, I really questioned myself and said, I don't. I might get to it eventually, but I never start with why. And so I questioned all the ways I was describing our company to the world, especially on these myriad tours we do. And the good news is, with all the tours, we do hundreds of tours a year, and I lead probably half of them now. Um, I was leading most of them in the early days. I had lots of time to practice a conversation with people walking in our door. So this one day I said, I'm going to start with why. I'm going to just try this thing that Simon Sinek has encouraged us to do. And I didn't know exactly what I was going to say that first day. I read our mission statement, and I actually picked up on a different word at first. Uh, because our, our mission is to actually end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. <laughs> so I thought to myself, yeah, it's, <laughs> there's lots of it out there so everybody can relate. 
and I thought, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell people what we believe is about suffering. I want everybody walking out the door of Menlo to associate Menlo with suffering. And I thought, no, 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 that's not the message I want them leaving. And, and I read ahead all the way to the very end of our mission statement, and I saw the joy statement. In some ways, I saw it for the first time ever. I saw it in a clearer light than I ever did hmm. before. And that was the moment where I realized that's what makes my heart sing. That's how we communicate with the people who want to work for us. It's everything we do in the room. It's straight line, laser beam focused on producing joy in the world with the work that happens in this room. And when I started articulating that message, quite frankly, the world changed for us and for me, and it led to the book. Wow. So from the beginning, you mentioned uh, being intentional about the culture at Menlo. What are the key elements that contribute to that culture? Well, first of all, let's, let's, we all know that every organization has a culture. Some of them have a culture they don't want. Right. Um, and a lot of times you get to the culture you don't want because you were never actually intentional about it. You're, you're just, you sort of get the default culture. Who did we hire? What attitudes do we tolerate today? What behaviors do we just turn away from but accept without question? And so from the beginning, you know, we, when you're doing the entrepreneurial thing, you, you have a choice. You can either just sort of bump along, probably like most organizations do, big or small, or you can be intentional about it. And so we, we were very intentional from the beginning. We, we said, look, we're only going to do this. Because remember, I was thinking of getting out of the profession. So in some ways, I was running away from risk, not towards it, because I had lost my heart for what I did for a living. And I, quite frankly, didn't know what I was going to do next in my life if I couldn't do this thing that I had been so enamored with when I was a kid and took, you know, focused all my education on it, my professional career. And so right from the beginning, we, we started changing. We changed everything about the way software is designed and developed. And we said, we're going to do it in a big open space. We're going to be open and collaborative. We're going to work specifically on, on not managing with fear. And, and if we can pump fear out of the room and, and filter out ambiguity, we can start to have people feeling safe in the room. They can begin to trust one another. Because what I wanted more than anything else is to be part of, to lead a high-energy team, a kind of team that can't wait to walk in the door every morning and, and loves what they do. And, and we wanted to work at a sustainable work pace. We didn't want the burnout that was typical in the death march culture of our industry. And so uh, we established a, 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 a style of work that allowed us to only work 40 hours of work a week and never weekends and never deny or delay vacation requests. And forbid people from checking email when they're on vacation. Because ultimately what we knew is if we burn out people, they will keep coming to work. They just won't bring their brains with them anymore. And the quality will suffer, morale will suffer, our reputation in the marketplace will suffer, and we'll be right back to where we were trying to escape from in the beginning. Wow. Rich, as I was reading those parts of the book, those were parts that really uh, made my heart sing. I want to go a little deeper with this one. You mentioned that you conduct these tours and that you have visitors coming from all over uh, the world to see and experience Menlo. What are some of the most frequently asked questions regarding the culture and specifically around the leadership 
at Menlo? Well, you know, it's a it's a fascinating place to come and visit, and I think most of the visitors come here word of mouth. Now that the book's out, of course, that's sort of propelling it uh, to a new level. Um, but th- they're coming here to learn some, I believe, some lessons about what it takes to create an intentionally joyful culture. So they they want to see. Not, they, they don't want to just hear the philosophy. They, they don't want to just hear the leader, you know, the, mm-hmm. the founder of the company say some things and take them to a conference room and draw some things on a whiteboard. They actually want to see Menlo in action. And I think this resonates with me because if you if you think about the business books that grab you, um, you know, and for me early on in my life, it was Peter Drucker's book on management and Tom Peter's book in search of excellence and uh, Peter Senge's book, the fifth discipline. And there's lots of books like Patrick Lencioni's books today that really grabbed me and the vital smarts books and, and the books from Arbinger Institute, all of these books really just grabbed me. But how often do people have a chance to go and see a living, breathing example and start digging their hands into the dirt of the details of the company and actually interact with the people who are working and see the visible artifacts that drive our system, our paper-based planning system, watch how we work together in pairs, two to a computer, and how we switch the pairs every five days. And so they want to start knowing, you know, what do you do when people don't get along? How do you handle interpersonal conflict? How do you hire for this kind of environment? Why is it that introverts actually like to work in a noisy, open, and collaborative environment when all the data suggests just the opposite? And so they just start drilling down and drilling down and drilling down. And quite frankly, I will say, no matter whether they're here for two hours or five days, and there's options all the way in between those two, they they never run out of questions. They leave somewhat satisfied, but but they're still unanswered questions because the the rabbit hole goes that deep. So there's this one question that I have that that you and I had some fun with in a Twitter exchange. And how is it that you, the CEO, allow your team to decide where your office in uh, air quotations is located? Yeah, well, you know, as you know, I don't have an office. There is no gifted C-suite. So, yes, the office should be in quotation marks because I sit at a five-foot table out in the middle of the room. The team has full autonomy over the physical space. We, we've made these pull-downs from the ceiling. The, the tables themselves are lightweight aluminum, strong, but lightweight aluminum tables. So the team can change the space however they choose, and they do it every day, a little bit. Every day, there's there's a subtle shift. Uh, roll a table over here, pull one over there, that sort of thing. Sometimes it changes dramatically, but I don't care where I sit. It doesn't matter to me where I sit. It just there's no there's no purpose of sitting one place versus another, and so I don't have to be higher up than everybody, or more to the front, or more to the back, or more in the middle. I just don't care. So the team knows this, and they actually move me around, not because they're trying to toy with me. They're, they basically say, we think you'll be more helpful to us if you're here, and they will move me around, and I just go to where they put me. And I, they've moved me probably in the last year three or four times. And uh, you know, last time was about 35 feet closer to the front door, and I haven't asked them why they keep moving me closer to the front door. <laughs> 
Well, I'm sure it's not for the uh, that one reason that may be crossing some people's mind, Rich. <laughs> hey, I also smiled when I read your comment that usually the best day on the job is the day of the interview. Ouch! But I can re- I re- remember some of the mind that that was the case. So say more about it, and what is it that Menlo has done to address that? Sure. You know, if I think back to my old life of interviewing people, uh, I now refer, you know, somewhat sarcastically, maybe not even somewhat, uh, that the the a typical interview, at least the ones I led, were two people lying to each other for a couple of hours. You know, you told me what a great person you are. You're a team player. You love to work with people. Uh, I look at your resume, and it's just filled with all these wonderful accolades and that sort of thing. And um, where you've gone to school and what you've studied and where you've worked and what you've done and all this sort of thing. And on the flip side, I'm sitting there telling you what a great company we are and and how much you're going to fit right in, and and we've got some perfect projects for you. And think, you know, I will encourage all of your listeners to think about those moments where you walk out of that door, clicking your heels, saying to yourself, Man, this is the, this is a new chapter in my life. This is this is the blank page that I can start writing the future of my career. This company, this is the place, and uh, and it's often that's a euphoric feeling because it's a this fresh start, this new beginning. And then the first day on the job, you, you show up at the front door and. and you know, the boss barely remembers you were coming in that day, and they, they lost some paperwork in HR, so they don't know where to put you. They don't have a cube, an office, a computer, an email address, even a chair. And so they end up setting you up in a lunchroom. Um, they, they give you a few books to read because, quite frankly, the projects that you were interviewing for have either been delayed or canceled, so they're not quite sure what they're going to do with you. And at that moment, you, you've begun a downward spiral that I think typically in my old managerial life took about six weeks, where I had about a six-week window to try and get you productive before I demoralized you. And I usually lost that race. And that was maddening to me because, you know, if you were excited about the new job, I was excited about you. I have, a, You know, I had all these other people who were despondent on my team, but I could see that glimmer of hope in your eye, and I could work with that energy, and I was excited to have you on the team. Well, here we've changed everything about the way people are recruited, how we interview them, how we onboard them, and, and changes that entire equation. Uh, we have an interview process where we don't ask any questions. Uh, which is crazy, right? Most people look at me funny when I say that. Like, how can you possibly have an interview where you don't ask any questions? Well, what we do is we simulate the work environment during our interview. We bring in 30, 40, 50 people at a time. And remember I told you before, we work in pairs, which is an unusual construct all by itself. So we interview in pairs. What we do is we put two candidates together, being observed by one Menlonian, a team member, and simply give you something to work on, a piece of paper and a pencil to record your results. It's not a trick question. It's not how many golf balls does it take to fill up Menlo or anything like that. These are simple, straightforward, practical exercises, hard enough that you'll fall into the work and not be thinking about anything else but just doing the work. We give you very explicit instructions. We tell you your job is to make your partner look good. Help them out. Support them. If you have an answer, give it to them. 
if you want the pencil, ask for it politely. Demonstrate your best kindergarten skills. Play well with others. We do this for 20 minutes, and then we switch the pairs. Now, it's a noisy environment because there's 50 of you. So there's 25 pairs and 25 observers. So there's kind of 75 people involved, the 50 who are interviewing and the 25 who are observing, taking notes about what they see. We switch these pairs three times, and as the first interview, we send you all home. We didn't ask you any questions. We barely looked at your resume because we don't care about what you've done in the past or what you've studied. If you don't fit our culture, you don't get to the next stage. And again, this is this probably goes to the heart of being intentional about your culture. Yeah. If your interview process is standard, you're going to get the standard results. If your interview process isn't tuned to your culture, you will not have an intentional culture. Rich, I'm going to ask you to repeat that one. That if your if your interview process is in is standard, you're going to get you're going to get. If your interview process is standard, you're going to get the same results everybody else does. Wow. If, you're, if your interview process isn't tuned to your culture, you cannot have an intentional culture because ultimately the culture is made up of the people. You can't just put posters on the wall. You can't have rah-rah speeches at 8 o'clock every morning and change your culture. It's all affected by the people you bring in and the mindset you set in their minds from the very beginning. And there's no better place to begin that setting of a mindset than the day of the interview. That's probably when you have most people's rapt attention. And so we demonstrate our culture in the interview. We begin teaching your culture during the interview process, not by talking it at you, but by having you experience it and essentially telling you, look, this is going to be how we decide whether you get to the second interview. Now, the second interview, we'll start testing for skills, but we're still looking for kindergarten talent because if you make it through the first round by a vote of the team members who watched everybody there, you make it to the second round, you you come in for a day and you work. Now, we pay you for that day. You spend the entire day with the team. Typically, you'll pair in the morning for four hours with one person, pair in the afternoon for four hours with the other person doing real work, on a real client project. So unlike that typical first day on the job, our interview, you're already beginning to work. You know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. You're, you're actually working with your mind and your hands and your heart and connecting with, deeply with team members because of the way we work. So our first day on the job is an upward spiral morale rather than a downward one. And if that day goes well, then we invite you in for a three-week paid trial. And if it works for your life, obviously that doesn't work for everybody. But if that works for you, then uh, we, ha- we both have a good sense of whether this is a good cultural fit for each other. That is a fascinating approach, and it really uh, creates a different mindset of onboarding and when onboarding begins. But one point that I want to just call out of that so people don't miss, in the first interview, what, what deems a successful candidate is them helping their partner get the second interview. Yes. It's the, you can watch brains twisting in the wind when we get that instruction because, of course, they're all sitting there saying, but wait, 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 I want the second interview. Yeah. And we have to set their mind at ease and say, look, we know how to look for this stuff because this is the way we work every day. And understand, you know, the person sitting across from you observing will likely be your pair partner in the future. So they're looking at you saying, 
hey, if I need to teach this person something, will they be a willing listener? If I need to learn something from them, will they be a good teacher? If I'm struggling, will they help me out? Now, these are very personal questions for everybody on our team. Menlo has a notion of structure without bureaucracy that I find quite intriguing, perhaps maybe even inconceivable to some people listening. So what's involved and how do you keep bureaucracy at bay as Menlo grows? Yeah, you know, my early career and and probably my greatest frustrations were born out of chaos. Uh, the chaos that is typical in the software industry, the chaos of phones ringing off the hook with problems, the chaos of uh, long nights and weekends of, you know, myriad bugs in the software you're delivering to the world, and now you're spending, you know, 30 to 40% of your team's time correcting errors you made in the past, and that's all demoralizing. And usually that kind of chaos leads to negative events for your company. Uh, you know, the story I tell in the book is uh, when Knight Capital Group, a tired programmer, made a mistake and they traded $7 billion worth of securities in 45 minutes, costing the company $400 million in 45 minutes. You know, those are the kind of errors computers are able to make uh, if left unchecked. And so typically what you see in most organizations is when you're operating in that kind of chaos and you have a negative event like that, crushing bureaucracy enters in, meetings, stage gates, committees, sign-offs, policy manuals that are big three-ring binders, establishment of a project management office that, that polices just the policy manual itself and the procedures manual. They're not doing any work. They're just making sure the meetings are occurring and the sign-offs are happening. And, and nobody wants to work in that kind of environment at all. Right. I mean, this is the this is the demoralization of going from the land of chaos where you never get anything done to the land of bureaucracy where you never get anything started. And what we strive for, and and you know, it's never perfect, but what we strive for is simple, repeatable, measurable, visible structure based on human relationships. And by focusing on that, suddenly hierarchy can disappear. Uh, you're not trapped in meetings all day long. Uh, and so we make everything here visible. It's out on the wall for all to see. The team is in charge of these processes, not some boss, not some manager. There's literally no hierarchy here. I mean, it's it's weird. I know it's even impossible to imagine for most of that you've got to have bosses and supervisors and department leads and all that sort of thing. And here we don't. We have a team. They all understand what the goal is. We we pumped this fear out of the room. We we filtered out an ambiguity. Everybody walking in the door knows exactly what they're supposed to be working on, really without having to ask anyone because we visualized everything. Hmm. Will you say more about the distinction between feeling safe and being safe and and manufactured fear and how you pump fear out? You bet. Um, so. I, I think everybody understands this concept. They may not have articulated it quite the way I have, but in a being safe culture, you're always watching over your shoulder. You're you're worried about the politics of the organization. You're you're trying to you know there there's that's the organization where when the boss walks in, everybody turns and smiles at the boss and make sure they make eye contact because you, you wanna you always want to be in that mode of being safe. 
and if you're in a being safe culture, you're never going to raise your hand. You're never going to, you know, your job is to keep your head low and, and, and stay out of trouble. In a feeling safe culture where you've pumped the fear out of the room, and the main fear that you can pump out is the fear you create to motivate your team. Look, every organization is going to be afraid of something, and that's healthy. Right, your competitors or the economy or all the real things that go on in the world, we we should have a healthy fear of that. That actually can get us out of bed and motivate us. The fear we don't need in in the room is the fear of managers walking in saying, you know, how's it going? What you working on? Hey, almost done. Can you stop working on this? Can you start working on that? Hey, why is that taking so long? Hey, how come you're not done yet? Hey, uh, I just got off of a phone call with my boss's 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 boss, you know, my three-up boss, and and uh, he's ranting and raving about this thing. you got to go get this done. You know, all of that stuff. If we can pump that stuff out of the room, then we start to feel safe. And if we feel safe, we begin to trust one another. And with trust comes teamwork. And inside of a high-energy team, you can get collaboration that leads to innovation and invention and imagination and creativity, which is what every company on planet Earth is striving for these days. But it all starts by getting fear out of the way. Because fear shuts down the most important parts of your brain, the parts of the brain that make us the most human. And so that's everything we do here is focused on that. So the fact that we put visible artifacts up on the wall where all can see it, and it's, you know, it's essentially uh, democratizing information. Uh, we use open book finance so the team knows where we are financially. Um, the hiring process involves everybody who wants to participate. When we do employee uh, uh, reviews, performance reviews, we don't use the typical annual performance review process. If you want to know how you're doing, you raise your hand and say, hey, I need to know how I'm doing here. Um, And you gather a set of your peers around you over a lunch hour out in the middle of the room and you talk about what's happening with you, where you're trying to uh, improve and where you think you need help and ask your peers, how am I doing, and get honest feedback from them. All those kind of things just promote this idea that this is a place I can walk in the door and feel safe. I'm having a lot of wow moments in our conversation. I hope our listeners are as well. Hey, Rich, what are your favorite topics of conversations to have with other leaders? You know, the the people I appreciate most are the ones who think about similar topics as I do, but perhaps have taken a different approach to them. So I always kind of yearn to meet with uh, alternative uh, kind of thinkers and leadership, Uh, people like Charlie Kim at Next Jump in New York City or uh, in January, I'll be in the same room as Patrick Lencioni giving a talk. And or the folks I've met at Arbinger Institute in, in uh, Salt Lake City or Vital Smarts, uh, the, the people who focus on the human relationship side of the equation are just fascinating to me. Uh, we are blessed here in Ann Arbor to have this amazing food organization yes. called Zingerman's, and Ari Weinswag and Paul uh, Sagan are the two 
co-founders of Zingerman's, and they've been around since the early 80s. And these guys are as wise as any leaders I've ever run into. And I just love hearing from them. I, I, I love the idea of what does it take to build great teams. So I seek out the leaders that have either done that or that's what they think about all day long. Awesome. And folks, if you're listening and you're uh, interested in learning more about Ari Weinschweig, we have a past servant leadership session with Ari. That was a fascinating conversation as well. Two more questions, Rich. One, is there something you'd like to discuss that we haven't yet touched on? You know, I, I, I think the, uh, the key lesson I encourage people, either when I'm asked to speak around the world or people come here, is everybody looks at me and they say, Rich, how do we get started? Where, where do we begin? You know, if we want to move in a direction, maybe not make things look just like Menlo, because I'm not confused about that. But the thing we do here is, um, uh, you know, is unique to us, and, and everybody needs to create their unique culture. That's as, as unique as your own DNA. And so you got to think about that stuff and decide what it is in your heart that you want to do. But at the moment when you start thinking about some things to change, uh, maybe get an idea from us or from others, and you you run back to work excitedly saying, hey, I have an idea. Those ideas get shot down so quickly because somebody, the first person you talk to, your boss, your peers, they look at you, shrug their shoulders and go, you know, that won't work here. We're just not that kind of company. Get over it. Right. And in those moments, you can be so easily defeated and you just sort of hunker down and go back to work. And what I want to encourage people to think about is a new phrase in your head when those moments happen. And it's to look back at them, smile a little bit, shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, I know, but let's run the experiment. Let's try something. Let's see how it works. Let's not defeat it out of the gates before we've even attempted this. And I think armed with that kind of mentality, this idea of running experiments rather than, you know, boiling the ocean and establishing a committee to do that, but just run simple series of small experiments to see if tomorrow can be just a little bit better than today. I think you can start a new path and your own organization. And here's the other thing, and this is what big organizations, we've had six corporate jets fly executives here this year alone from all over the country to come and visit. And, you know, when you get into these big organizations, the kind that can afford corporate jets, they often look at us and they say, well, can this scale, can it be big enough? And I look at them and I say, look, you don't have to change the world. You just change your little piece of the world. You know, Menlo itself is a small team. We've only got 50 to 60 people here. And yet we plug our organization, because of what we do, we plug our organization to some of the largest corporations on the planet because they buy our services. Well, we can still be Menlo, even though it's these large bureaucratic organizations that are choosing to use us for our services. So we can still be us, even though we're part of a very large organization. So I would encourage any of your listeners to think about how can we clean up our little campsite just around us? How can we make our lives better? And perhaps then you can serve as an example to others. Well, thank you, Rich. Thanks for joining us today, spreading joy. You've mentioned these tours several times. If we have any listeners wanting to 
come visit Ann Arbor, take a tour. How do they go about that? There is a tab on our website that says Experience Menlo by Visiting, and they can go look at the different options they have, or they can simply write an email to the email address experience at menloinnovations.com and say, I'd like, to, I'd like to find out what your options are for tours. And like I say, we do one to three tours a day now. Uh, we've had, I think we've already passed 3,200 visitors this year alone who've come from every continent on the planet other than Antarctica. Well, Rich, I want to take one of those tours, and the tour that I'm planning on taking also includes lunch at Zingerman's Deli. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yes, a lot of people who come here uh, make a stop at Zingerman's as well, and it's uh, not to be missed if you're coming to Ann Arbor. No question. Well, Rich, thanks so much. And, uh, folks, we look forward to being back, and our next installment has a, a quite uh, interesting pairing with this, and it's about happiness. So until next time. Join us next time for more Servant Leadership Sessions with your host, Kevin Monroe. And for more information about how to energize your workplace through the power of servant leadership, log on to cairnway.net. C-A-I-R-N-W-A-Y dot net.